You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Hey there, podcast listeners. We're at the 2013 Follow the Light Awards ceremony. 50 surf photographers have submitted their work for a chance to win a grant and important industry connections. The winner will be chosen tonight. The evening is hosted by Aaron Chang. The Follow the Light Awards is about uh, giving an aspiring photographer a boost up in the industry, giving him a grant that he can use to further his career. And it's, it's really uh, been a privilege to work with all these photographers. Every year it seems to get better and better. It seems like it's going to snap at some point, but it's still, the tension is still ratcheting. So I'd like you to uh, uh, invite these finalists up on the stage with me. Uh, this year's finalists are Seth Desrolais. Aaron introduces the five finalists, and they join him on stage to discuss their work. The foundation was started to pay homage to legendary Southern California surf photographer Larry Flame Moore. His sister Celeste now runs the foundation. Here's more from Celeste. Follow the Light Foundation is an organization that was started by the Moore family after Larry Moore passed away from brain cancer. And it was our desire to carry out his wish of carrying the torch. That's what he asked us to do. And we couldn't think of a better way to do that than to carry on the tradition of mentorship, of encouragement of young and upcoming surf photographers and surfers, which is something that he did his entire life. And it's our way to honor him and to share an evening every year with the people that loved him and to continue the work that he started. There's no one defined path that leads you into professional surf photography. But the Follow the Light Foundation can certainly help springboard your career. Nobody knows that better than the 2010 recipient, Morgan Mawson. Can you, can you tell me about Follow the Light? Yeah, well, about almost three years ago, actually three years ago tomorrow, uh, that I entered Follow the Light. And um, it was just kind of a crapshoot, because at that point, the year prior to that, was the first year I shot photos, seriously, on my little walk about around the world. and. Um, I just had these photos and I was like, well, it's $50 entry fee and pretty easy to make a slideshow and so I just threw one together and um, I came down here and I was already kind of blown away to make the semi-finalist because uh, I was, I felt like as I was starting to get a little bit of momentum and people were starting to ask me for photos, I still felt like I kind of had this complex that my photos were pretty off-kilter and so I came down here not really expecting anything and I was up against some really amazing photographers like Billy Watts and Corey Wilson and stuff, and um, I just, they, they handed me the grant, and it was really kind of strange and surreal, and um, more than anything, more than the money or more than just the, the victory of that night, it was uh, really special because it 
first of all, kind of put my name on the map, but secondly, it was, it uh, really kind of kick-started my career, gave me yeah. a kick in the butt to kind of pursue things and mentally, and as well as uh, kind of the support group through the foundation really kind of, they all put their hands on my shoulder and said, go for it. Wow. And that was really special, you know. Wow. Um, so that was, I look back on that as kind of the moment that I realized what I needed to do and I also got the support from the right people to do right. what I wanted to do. Yeah. You know. That's a huge validator. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. It really validated what I was Philly fouling with the year before and kind of goofing off and yeah. it just kind of like everything set in place. Cool. So I, I am eternally grateful for that. We'll hear more from Morgan later in the show. Welcome back to Surf Splendor. I'm your host, David Scales. This week's episode, The Art and Business of Surf Photography. Who can measure the influence that surf photography has had on our lives? It is infinite. I still vividly remember some of the first surfing images that I saw. I remember being a 13-year-old kid and at the end of summer my mom taking me to the store to go buy a new wardrobe for the upcoming school year. And my favorite t-shirt that I got was actually an Aaron Chang t-shirt. And the image on the back was a perfect right-hander peeling in front of Witch's Rock in Costa Rica. I think we all can probably recall Tom Curran's carve at Backdoor and even the loin-clothed Hawaiian surfer holding the alaya at Waikiki with Diamond Head as the backdrop. Is there a more valuable form of surf media? Perhaps not. We bring you today's show in three parts. Part one is a discussion with Aaron Chang. He tells us about professional surf photography prior to the digital revolution and how he's adapted to changes over the course of the past three decades. Part two features Morgan Mawson, whom we just heard from. At 22 years old, he has quickly established himself among the top tier of surf photographers, working alongside Kelly Slater, Dane Reynolds, and Stephanie Gilmore. And lastly, we'll close the show with the optimistic words from the five finalists of this year's Follow the Light Foundation. Thanks for listening. We're glad to have you. We hope you enjoy the show. Part one, Aaron Chang. I'm curious to hear what the process was for even sending images <laughs> in at that point in time. Well, it was a weird process because, you know, you shot film, which is, you know, I, I, a lot of people probably don't even remember, but you had to go, for me, living on the North Shore, you had to go into town, which was an all-day bus ride or, yeah. you know, hitch a ride or something and buy a roll of film. You'd shoot that film over the course of a few days or weeks sometimes because you would shoot very, very selectively. Of course. 
And then once you got the film, you would have to take it into the lab. At the time, there was a Pacific hub for Kodak, and there was a processing lab in um, Honolulu. Okay. So you would take it in there, and you'd wait a couple days, and then you'd get a ride back and go pick up the film. And that's how you, you did it. And so you'd work for, I worked for a few weeks getting, you know, some a pictures, yeah. a roll shot, and, you know, then I you go through the process, you select out the slides, you put them in a slide page, you would stand in line at the post office, and, you know, I couldn't afford airmail, so I'd send it by boat to California. It would take three weeks to get there. And so you'd wait, you know, three weeks, there would be a reaction, you'd get a letter in the mail, which would take a week or two to get back to you, depending on how it was sent, and you'd figure out how you did. Wow. So it was a different process then. And it's funny because when I, when I did get this, get my first job as a contributing photographer for Surfing Magazine, the deal was they would send you film. It would come from California by boat. So it would take three weeks to get to you. You would shoot it over the period of a month or two. You would mail it back to California. That would take three weeks. And then three weeks later, you'd get all the rejects in a letter telling you how you did. So six weeks would pass bef between sending the film and getting a reaction to it. And that was the process. Yeah. And then two months later, you might see a picture in the magazine. Right, right. That's Aaron talking about working with film on the North Shore in the 70s. Surf photography has come a long way since Aaron began. He grew up in San Diego, California, where he first fell in love with the ocean. He explored surf filmmaking with his friends, and he told me about his first experience with photography. Well, my, my exposure to photography was accidental. Uh, my dad was a teacher. He taught math, but in the summer he taught photography. And I remember walking into a dark room. I think I was probably nine and just being amazed by all the machinery and the idea of you know making pictures but when I was 11 I, I was a member of the boys club and one of the projects was to print a black and white negative okay. and that was my first exposure to photography and it was just an amazing process do you remember what you printed I printed a picture of the Coronado Ferry okay. I'll never forget you know when you the first time you see something materialize by dipping a piece of paper in a chemical. It's just an, a, an amazing process and one that I'll, I'll never forget that first moment. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. And then from there, we, we, uh, I really got involved uh, in surfing. I was just what I would call a, a pretty core surfer. I surfed every day, sometimes before and after school. Uh, my friends and I lived at the beach. You know, we ate, drank, sleep, breathed dream surfing. That's all that was on our minds. And it wasn't until high school when I was doing uh, photography as an extra class uh, that I had an accident where I broke my ankle and I, I, my best friend's father had a Super 8 camera. So I went out on the pier in Imperial Beach and shot a roll of movie film of my friend surfing. And we, at that time you sent it off to Kmart oh. and it would come back in the mail two or three weeks later. But that first roll of film was the very cathartic moment because I looked at that film and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And it really kind of ignited my interest in photography. Wow. Aaron pursued his interest in filmmaking and garnered some success. 
He went to Hawaii immediately after high school, produced a film on the North Shore, and then came back to California to tour the film. While showing his film, he had a meeting that would change the trajectory of his career. But the significant event on that tour was that I went to surfing and surfer magazines and showed them the movie to try and get a review. And at Surfing Magazine, I met Larry Moore. And that's one of the, the milestones in my life, was that meeting. And it wouldn't have happened without that Super 8 movie. Well, what transpired from that meeting? Well, Larry came by after the movie, and he, he didn't even comment on the movie. He said, you know, there's some good water shots in there. Do you think you could do that with a still photographer, with a still camera? And I said, you know, I don't know. I've never really tried that hard, so I'll see. So I went, when I went back to Hawaii, that was in the summer, the next winter I decided to shoot just stills. And um, I think at the time I had an Eichlite water housing, which was made for diving, super dangerous, really clumsy, single shot, no focusing ability, 50 millimeter lens, all this stuff that, you know, and the film was Kodachrome 25, so you shot it 5.6 at 250th or something, so most of the frames were blurry, and I mean, just the odds were stacked against you. But I managed to get a photo that, in, in the analog sense, went viral. It, it got picked up by Surfing Magazine, it was a poster pullout, a big poster publisher saw it, it was published as an oversized poster, and years later as I was traveling around the world for Surfing Magazine, I would see this poster all over the world. What was the image? It was Doug Brown at Pipeline, it was a water shot done with a 50 millimeter lens on Kodachrome 25. Was he bottom turning? Or it, he was just in the barrel and it was just a beautiful, beautiful oh. picture of surfing. And it was at first because most of the pictures from Pipeline were done with a telephoto lens. 100, 135 was the standard. I didn't have that, couldn't afford it, so I had a 50. So I actually swam close enough to shoot with a wider angle lens and that had never been seen before at that time. And so that was uh, what put me on the map in still photography. So then um, you continued working with Larry essentially and feeding him images? Well, I, you know, it's interesting because Surfer was the magazine okay. at the time, sure. and that's where I wanted to work. And Jeff Devine was the photo editor, and I divided up the photos, and I sent the best ones. I only sent 20 to each magazine, one sheet of slides. And I sent the best ones to Surfer and the second group to Surfing Magazine. And, sorry, Jeff wasn't the photo editor. Warren Bolster was the photo oh, okay. editor. Uh, Jeff saw the Doug Brown photo and was flipping out over it and said, you know, you've got a photo here, this is really good. So I, I sent it to Warren and oddly enough he rejected the photo. And it was kind of a stunner to me. Uh, they chose three photos to publish in the next issue, which I considered a big win. And then that photo of Doug Brown I sent over to Surfing Magazine and they ran it as the poster pullout and that kind of launched my career. Okay. Do you remember what uh, pay scale was at that time, if you got images published? I don't remember exactly. Things are a little foggy. I do remember that my first check, my first retainer check from Surfing Magazine was $75 a month. Oh I thought that was amazing. I do know at the time, at Surfing Magazine, Dan Merkel was the highest paid guy, and his retainer was $500 a month. Wow. 
so he was making substantially more money. I think a cover paid $100 or $75, and a single page was like $25, and a spot was $10. Okay. What time, like what year was this? Late 70s, okay. late 70s. Sort of like ESM today. Yeah. <laughs> I just got a check from them for $25. Well, I mean, Things was, haven't changed much. That's what I was saying earlier. I feel like it did get reasonable for a while, but now it's come back around to where you have to be a lot more creative well, where you secure your income. I, I would argue that. You know, I think the editorial buy rates for the magazines were never significant. And it was never, you could never rely on that as a source of income, survivable source of income. You always had to parlay it as that's your loss leader, that's getting my name out there, getting me known, and then try and pick up accounts doing whatever. Product. Product, advertising, you know, selling ad shots to other people. I mean, hmm. it, it was always this weird combination. And the magazines used to work this process where they would give you a retainer, but they would take it out of your buyout. So they would front you $75, but that allowed them to use $75. So there was, there was no real income to be made at the magazines. Interesting. A lot of, lot of glamour associated with it. And people to this day have this misconception that guys shooting and getting published a lot, like me, made some enormous amount of money off all the pictures we had published. We made nothing. You know, it was, wasn't even enough to survive. Um, if, if it included travel, though, I, I suppose that's a benefit, right? Well, that, that's why you did it. You know, the, if you got good enough to have a trip sponsored, that was a bonus, you know. And, and nobody does this for money. Nobody. To this day, nobody. You'd have to be an idiot to want to be a surf photographer and think that you're going to make money out of it. Because you, you do it because, well, speaking for myself, I did it because of my intense love of the sport. And my, my path to being able to surf around the world was to do it through my photography. You know, for a kid from Imperial Beach, the idea of surfing Jeffreys Bay and traveling around the world was way beyond my uh, grasp, especially with the path I chose to bail out of school and go to Hawaii. But if I could do it through working for Surfing Magazine, that was a win for me. So my whole motivation was to be able to surf around the world, you know, and I would work hard on my photography to enable my traveling, to enable my surfing. It seems like a difficult balance, especially at the time when you were filming as well, because you've got filming, you've got shooting stills, which you can't do both simultaneously, and then surfing. And when the waves are good, how do you pick which one to do? And so if you were maybe being sponsored to travel by one of the magazines, could you even bring surfboards on a trip like that? And if you did, did that jeopardize the reason why you were there? Well, there was nobody that policed it. Okay. Nobody laid down any rules. It was just, here's an air ticket, here's a couple hundred dollars, you know, go to Bali. In my mind, you'd have to be an idiot to take that equation and not take a surfboard. So for me, there was no question. It was always, what boards do I take first? And what kind of camera gear can I fit in around that? Really? And, you know, it, it, it all, invariably was always a water housing, a still camera, long lens, you know, 600, those old Sentry optics. So it was, you traveled pretty light back then. You know, the gear was, was a lot less expensive. It was all analog. You know, your biggest concern was how many rolls of film you had. Right. And, you know, I flew off to Australia, one of my first big international trips with 
one Nikkermat FTN body, which is you know, nothing, three prime lenses, a water housing, and a 600 Sentry, and a little tripod. It was, it was basically no gear. I think I had 10 rolls of film. Or and something. probably film was hard to come by once you're in Once you're on the road, because you had no money, a lot of times you couldn't. I, I've got out of a lot of situations traveling by selling my film to get some money to get out of a situation. Nowadays, trips are so orchestrated where it's timed with swells. You're going with a specific group of guys and you've got local handlers once you arrive oftentimes. Um, what was it like back then, you know, like that, uh, that Australia trip? That, you know, back then it was, it was so vague and so uh, left to chance that a lot of trips actually failed. You know, my, as, as I got experience, I, I felt like I needed at least three weeks someplace to get a swell and get enough photos to, yeah. to bring home a feature article. But nobody told me that. I worked out a that out along the way. My first trip to Australia, was for three months. Just here's a ticket. Somebody will meet you on the Gold Coast, and you know, bring us back a couple cover stories. And oh, here's three hundred dollars for your expenses. So I flew off. I didn't know who I was meeting. You know, there was no communication. There was no cell phones. I don't know how the magazines probably had enough money to call down there, maybe. You know, and set it up, but. You know, I would just show up. I showed up in Burley Heads, like, hoping to run into somebody. And, you know, it was a few days before they did. You know, and then it was, it was so, there was no plan. There was no anything. It was just, all right, we're going to go down the coast and we'll shoot some photos. Right, right. And, you know, you never knew what you were going to get. Aaron spoke so fondly of that first visceral experience he had developing a film image. I was curious how he's dealt with the transition to digital. Well, it's, it's interesting because um, I have a personal motto to embrace change. Okay. And I was working with uh, uh, a young South African photographer, ex-pro surfer turned photographer at the time, and we were pioneering this idea of documenting the professional contests and releasing photos immediately. So as the digital platform was starting to be laid and the internet was starting, you know, we were shooting film, racing to a one-hour lab, processing that, scanning the film, and then uploading that to the web. Um, what year? I don't know the year. Okay. I'm sorry. 2000, late 90s? In the, two, in the 2000s, I'm okay. going to say. That'd be a good question for me to know. Um, so... At that time, the next year, Kodak and Canon announced a collaborative digital camera. It was the first pro digital camera. And what it was, was I think it was uh, Kodak technology married with uh, Canon camera body. And it shot, the camera shot a four megapixel JPEG. And so we had to have it. It was $18,000. We bought that camera, put it on the tour, and boom, our business called Covered Images got launched. It was kind of a, a revolution. The reason that I felt strongly about that, and that being the right step, was that my wife and I were running a clothing company, 
and we were shooting our own catalogs. I was my own biggest client. And I was shooting film and you'd have to send the film out and you'd have to get each one drum scanned. And that was a major expense. And this idea that on my Hasselblad, you could put a digital back on it and shoot the film straight to a, to a digital file was kind of amazing. Yeah. So I started doing that and renting the backs. They were, gosh, they were $300 a day or something. The color capture was a little bit funky. And they, I always remember having to knock down the reds. But it did show me that digital had great advantages. And, you know, for a long time the argument was that the image, imagery was crappy and inferior to film, and that was absolutely true. But it's only a matter of time with technology. So I bought in to the digital platform very early, extremely early, you know, and was on Photoshop, learning it. I had, in the clothing company, we had hired graphic designers, and I was always looking over their shoulders, learning tips. Eventually, I just pushed them out of the way and had them teaching me, and I became what I would consider to be an expert in Photoshop. And so, for me, I've never really uh, had any barriers to entry like the technology, the software. I, I was kind of always immersed in that. I'm kind of a geeky guy in some ways, and I, I love gear and building water housings and doing all that stuff. So, when things started to change, it was an easy transition for me. But in terms of an industry, in terms of the photography industry, the platform change was radical and dramatic, you know, and people that didn't change soon started to encounter being really behind the eight ball in terms of delivery and capture and cost. Although the, the misnomer that digital is cheaper is, is wildly false, you know. It's sure you don't pay $20 for a roll of film, but you pay $300 for the software and $3,000 for the computer and you know it just goes on and on and on. It's probably statistically I think it's five times more money to have a digital photography business than a, an analog or a film business. Yeah, and it probably gets outdated. Every two years. Well. Yeah. The, the turnover is every two years. So I think the average pro photographer has to float about $100,000 worth of stuff to have a successful business, they have to turn it every two years. Crazy. Whereas film camera, the average guy with all the lights and film and camera, would it was like twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars, and it would last every five years yeah. till a turnover. So it's digital photography, while it's dramatically better, is dramatically more expensive to do. Right. Plus, you have to be everything. Yeah. You know, you used to turn film into a lab. Those guys knew how to process it perfectly. You would take your slides to another lab, they would make the prints perfectly. To get it in a magazine, you'd turn it into a drum scanner, they would scan it. So now a photographer has to be all those things in one. And it's, it's a much more complicated equation. I then asked Aaron about how the digital revolution and social media has changed the work environment. Well, the environment now is, is just different. You know, it's, it's, I think it's, equally as hard as when I started. You know, uh, in, the, in the world of supply and demand, there's an oversupply right now. You know, there's so many photographers running around. There's so much uh, content being produced on a daily basis. I think the thing that really is interesting to me are, are what are the filters? And, you know, the magazine used to be the filter. The editors used to make decisions. They'd lay out all the photos on a light table 
they go, this is a good one. This is a good one. And, and it was in a controlled environment. Now, on the web, it's an uncontrolled environment. And everybody can put up everything. And Instagram is changing that daily. Um, so I think the thing I'm looking for are what are the filters. You know, I use Instagram and I love it because it's, an, it's a way to connect with people. Right. And I'm posting new pictures, I'm posting retro stories. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that people like my account because it has a governor of this experience level of 30 years in the industry. It's not to say it's the greatest, but you know, it's, it's an effort that has uh, some very interesting things that go all the way back to my first days in surfing, you know, in the 70s. So, but it, it's changing, you know, it's changing as we speak with, with the way that people see and do things. But I think Instagram is an important communicative tool for our culture right now. People speak in pictures. They, they're stop, stopping the use of words. And they're stopping even talking to each other. But they're pinging pictures at an astronomical rate. And in that way, it's almost like an entirely new form of communication. Because, you know, if a picture says a thousand words, they're actually translating lots of ideas yeah. and concepts instantly through their photographs. I think that's certainly true. I, I think that what you're saying is that you're using it as a communicative tool with your client base that maybe you didn't have before. Is there any worry at all that it devalues the product that you're selling? The whole reason to take a picture is to share an idea. The whole reason you take a picture is to show somebody else something that you see and you're trying to communicate. You know, when I started out, I used to do slideshows for the neighborhood, and I would show 20 people. That was my form of communication. Nowadays, everybody can show almost everybody what they're seeing and what they're thinking. Instagram allows me to get an instant feedback on things. Oh, I like this. I don't like this. You know, that's terrible. This is good. Oh, I'd like to see more of that. So it's a really good way for me to communicate with people. And it, it really communicates a lot. You know, I'm, I'm going back through my archives and I, I found pictures that I did of Kelly Slater when he was 12 years old, you know? And I, I did this cool little post of pictures of him from, from then till now. And, you know, a picture of the one I love best was uh, Kelly at, on the beach at Back Door uh, talking to Makua Rothman, who looks like he's about 12 in the photo, you know? And so, I think it's a good way for people to kind of share things. A lot of those pictures sit in my closet, and if nobody sees them, are they any good? Right. And you know, are, are, uh, sorry, are they of any value? Right. So rather than decrease the value, I think it actually increases the value because the reason you took that photo was to communicate, and if they're not communicating in some way to somebody, it's questionable whether they're valuable or not. Boom. How do you like that? A bit of truth from the legend himself, Aaron Chang. Aaron is a gallery in Solana Beach, California. You can see his work and get all his information on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. 
your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Next time on an all-new Surf Splendor, we'll hear what it was like shaping boards with Jerry Lopez in Hawaii in the 70s. And so we would like trade houses, sure. cars, and shaping room. Wow. So it was like, man, I was like in heaven. Right. Imagine being on Maui, driving Jerry Lopez's car, working out of his shaping room. I felt like, you know, God's right-hand man. Totally. <laughs> and giving it all up to study law in Oregon. Oh, I didn't even want to be a lawyer. I just, I just wanted to learn how to not be so stupid, you know. I just, just I had a lot of anger, you know, I had a lot of anger and a lot of um, unresolved feelings, and I wanted to channel it into something positive. I didn't want to just, like, self-destruct. So I just kind of threw myself into it, not really knowing what I was getting into. I just thought, the way I lost this was not being legally protected, so I'm going to learn how to be legally protected. It's the remarkable story of iconic surfboard shaper Tom Parrish, next time on an all-new Surf Splendor. Welcome back to Surf Splendor, Episode 3, The Art and Business of Surf Photography. In this second part of today's program, we bring you a conversation with Morgan Mawson. He kind of came out of nowhere. I remember this first image that I saw of his was this really moody water shot. The perspective was from the shoulder of some left reef break in the South Pacific. The surfer is backlit and silhouetted. He's starting this super casual, almost lazy backside turn down the top of the wave. The clouds look like it's about to rain, and it's just really odd and unique in this atmospheric moment of surfing, and I absolutely loved it. Um, I don't even remember where the image originally ran, but um, I'll make sure to post it on our website if you want to come check it out. But anyways, Morgan grew up in Santa Barbara County, and he went to school with some of Tom Curran's kids. He casually got to know Bobby Martinez and Dane Reynolds 
just from seeing them around, surfing Rencon and whatnot. And Morgan was an avid surfer. And much like with Aaron Chang's story, as a young teenager, he had an injury that required him to stay out of the water. So he borrowed a friend's video camera, torrented some editing software, and began filming surfing. He made a surf film, got some feedback on it, and then at the age of 16, he made a second. It was like a, a, about as proper as a movie a 16-year-old going to high school can make. Sure. And that, um, I sold in the surf shops and people were pretty stoked on it, like the local guys, and, and I was really stoked on it and I put a lot of time and effort, actually a, more than a year filming it and really kind of delved, that was a turning point where I delved into cinematography and okay. tried to get interesting shots and develop my own style. And at that point I was surfing less and less and filming more and more. I'd only surf on the crappy days and I, right. would, I would, you know, I'd try to always link up with either my best friends or Bobby or Tom and Kelly or Dane and, and stuff and try to get good footage of them. And So that was a huge turning point where I kind of started to pursue image making and surfing professionally. And um, after that I kind of just drifted aimlessly and I, I was really over high school and so I uh, tested early, I got my the Chesapeake test, which gave me my GED, and I was doing graphic design too, to kind of part-time, to make some money, and uh, working for Stussy, and they offered me a full-time job, so I fell into that, and I worked on that for a couple of years, and would just video and, and mess around when I wasn't doing that, and it was it was fun, but uh, kind of aimless, and I yeah. began working in an office at the age of 17, and um, I was really, really ready to travel, so... By the time I was 18, I actually left my job, and I was—I had saved up enough money to travel around the world as well as shoot it all on super on 16 mil and make a proper surf film. And I kind of had two years of anticipation for this moment. And the moment I bought the ticket, I was just like, I'd rather just surf on my own accord and and hike and travel and spend time in cities and not really make something or not view it through a camera, but yeah, just, yeah. just live it. And so I did that. Um, but I did it, I bought, I was like, I might as well just shoot a little bit of Super 8, because I was loving Super 8, and uh, and then I should buy a, a still camera. And so I bought uh, a little still camera, and my dad gave me his little old film camera too, and um, I just kind of shot traveling. And wow. uh, and I actually came back and worked a bit more for Stussy, and I, that's Where, Where'd you go on that trip? I went to Australia and Brazil, Fiji, and uh, Europe. Did you places. surf along the way? Yeah, I did. You did. Yeah, I surfed a ton, cool. and uh, and I hung out in cities and met up with friends and just hiked and uh, just did pretty much everything. Not wow. really so much backpacking, but like just tra traveling and settling in certain places and stuff. Wow. And, um, yeah, and so that's when uh, I kind of shot photos and it, and it really clicked. And um, throughout that traveling, I had more and more fun shooting photos to the point where. Um, uh, I came back and I kind of organized my portfolio and started running a blog and a website and just for fun, really, because um, I was once again back working at Susie and I started getting emails from magazines and, and companies and stuff that asked to use my work and just based um, off what was just, posted just what on they the were blog? seeing on social media, wow. yeah. And so that's kind of as well as having the connection of shooting with certain guys and yeah, their sponsors' knee shots. But it just kind of came very suddenly because I guess like I flipped my own switch and really put a lot of time and effort into it. Right. And so um, and that was when I was about 19. That I really kind of got serious about photography after about a year of just mucking around. Right. How old are you now? 22. Okay. Yeah. So three years ago. Mm -hmm. Um. So 
you casually mentioned working with Kelly and Dane during that time too. Can you, what was the experience like meeting Kelly, especially well, being young and into surfing and surf film? In that sense, like when I was 16, 17 filming around Santa Barbara, I had a, a personal relationship with Tom and Bobby and you know my friends Brandon and Trevor, the, the best young local surfers and stuff and the Coffin Kids and whatnot. But uh, when this was right when Kelly started coming up to Santa Barbara because right. he was dating Kalani. And so through word of mouth, you'd hear that he'd be at Rincon and uh, the guys at CI would say he was coming up for a couple of days. And so I didn't really have a working relationship with Kelly, but I could audit his surf sessions, you know? Right. And, um, and then same with Dane too. This was when Dane was still living in Ventura and he was an up and comer and, and uh, the writing was on the wall, but he didn't really have the, the clout yet. And so he was just, he was still doing what he does now. He's just surfing crappy waves, but occasionally he'd come up to Rincon and um, you'd catch that, you know. So in that sense, I wasn't working with them. Um, I was just tagging along, you know, yeah. and, and catching rumors of them coming about. Totally. Yeah. What was that like for you? Oh, it was amazing. I yeah. The first time I saw Kelly was just the worst day at Rincon ever, but he was buying or getting boards at CI and he just came out and blew our minds, you yeah. know. And, and I had gone down with my friends Brandon and, and Bobby and Bobby was surfing insane and then all of a sudden Kelly paddles out and they're like just dueling and it was it was really cool to watch that happen. I feel like I remember seeing an edit of Kelly that you made at some point like before I it might have been the first time I saw your name associated with anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 that that day was totally random too but a friend from CI said Kelly was in town so yeah I went down to Rincon actually to surf and it was quite good and I paddled out for a couple waves and sure enough Kelly paddles out after like my fourth wave and so I ran in grabbed my camera and just that afternoon he was testing a certain board in the course of an hour and a half it surfed so well and so tight that I put up an edit and it caught, did really well it got yeah. like 1.3 1. million hits or something holy cow that's a yeah. lot wow so as you've transitioned away from kind of filmmaking and into still photography was that an intentional transition? Not or? at all, because I've always dreamed of being a filmmaker, and I still do. Um, but photography just kind of fell into my lap, and it got so yeah. serious so fast. Um, I guess it's because like maybe my style and the eye I had put time and effort into developing cinematically transferred over immediately photography, and then I just threw all my time and effort and pent-up frustration from working a desk job as well as being in high school just into that, as well as having some money saved up to travel, and so it kind of all just blew up really quickly, hmm. and within a year I was, you know, like, I kind of had a good relationship with Patagonia, and then it, that rolled snowballed into Billabong, and um, working with Surfer Magazine, and, and uh, a couple other media outlets. And right, so what's your official position at this point? Right now, um, I'm full staff, filmmaker and photographer at Quicksilver. At Quicksilver? Yeah. Um, what is your work schedule like currently? For somebody who's like interested to get into surf photography, what does it look like to be a pro surf photographer? Well, last year is kind of, I was working what, what would be considered the ideal setup where Quicksilver had me on a medium-sized contract as well as Surfer Mag, I was on retainer with Surfer Mag. So I would do a surfer trip once a month and then do a Quicksilver trip once a month or two. And the Quicksilver trips would be bigger and harder, like a campaign shoot or uh, based around a certain product line or a certain athlete's performance or um, clothing. 
Where and then a surfer trip would be I could either be told to go somewhere or I would be able to assemble a crew and go wherever I wanted if the logistics were right. Um, but at the end of the year, it kind of my load of Quicksilver increased, and they wanted to give me more responsibility as well. And um, so I left Surfer, and now I work full time for Quicksilver. Um, we do a lot of short films, uh, commercial work, web edits, and stuff, as well as all the photography is fashion or like surf fashion, right, right. Uh, lifestyle, and obviously action. And then um, I also work for Roxy, so I do wow. a lot of their photography. So it's it's um pretty full in the way that we've devised since I don't work nine to five in the office like obviously the art directors and marketing people do um, I work for them for a certain amount of days and any day out of the year out of the 100 days they can tell me where to go and what to shoot and uh, it's fully expense paid but it's also that I'm on the clock the whole time and right. it could be swimming eight hours or it could be shooting product in the middle of like Panama City for eight hours just incredibly intense but then the other 265 days of the year I'm free to work for any other non-competitive brand as well as any magazine and uh, so I'm, I'm doing a lot of like lifestyle and fashion and commercial work outside the surf industry and also doing all sorts of magazine projects too Wow so it's pretty it's cool. a full plate man yeah it's um Setup. Can you give me an idea of what the last let's say two months of your life have looked like in terms of travel and it's been pretty uh, summer, I've been in the last two months. I got back from Australia. I went to Hawaii immediately from Australia and then for a Quicksilver product shoot, um, just board shorts like lifestyle and surfing, and then back the next week for a fashion shoot on Kauai. And then after that, I've been to Mexico four times. Oh my gosh. And uh, yeah, that was the last two months. So I just got back about four days ago from my last trip to Mexico. So where are you based out of in California, Santa Barbara? Um, I'm from Santa Barbara, but I live now in LA. Okay. And I go I go home to Santa Barbara basically when I'm, I can have a little personal time, yeah. see my dog and my family and yeah, yeah. friends and stuff. How is it um, managing those personal relationships being on the road so much? I mean... Oh, it's hard. It's like pretty much impossible to have a girlfriend. Actually, for sure. broke up with my last girlfriend who I really loved because I never saw her. I yeah. would go three months without seeing her, and um, so it's hard. I see my dog once every, I don't know, for on average two days a month. Wow. <laughs> so, and that's uh, usually those same days I see my parents who have my dog, and right, uh, right. so it's pretty interesting. Like, I miss a lot of birthdays and a lot of weddings and stuff, but at the same time, it's because I love what I do so much that I've aligned my schedule to do as much as possible you know and yeah it it seems unsustainable however guys like Kelly have made made it sustainable yeah. you know and Absolutely. so I think it's totally customizable to how you want it and right now I have no girlfriend I have uh, no overhead really no house no mortgage and uh, I just want to travel as much as possible, so really I just tell everyone to send me as many places as I want, I plan as many trips as I can, and I try to shoot, and I love shooting photos, and I love making movies, and so I try to be doing that every day, because if I'm not, I take a day off every couple weeks to read books, or do some art, or go just hike, or whatever, but for the most part I just love the momentum of constantly being doing something that I love. The audio got a little funky here, but basically, 
I told Morgan about my conversation with Aaron Chang and how much time, money, and commitment it took to pursue a career in surf photography in the 70s. I asked Morgan what his thoughts are on the easy access to equipment and technology and how that is affecting the professional landscape today. It's allowed anyone to try to be a photographer, but it's only raised the bar even higher for it real has, photographers. I for mean, sure. if you look like the photographers of 10 years ago, they would just shoot fisheye photos out of pipe when the light was, when there's not a cloud in the sky, or shoot 600 mil telephoto. And that's, you had two lenses in your kit, you'd only shoot one type of film when the sun was right. If it was foggy or cloudy, you wouldn't touch a camera. Right. But now it's, you need to make the most out of shooting every condition. You need to be able to shoot every condition. You need to, you know, be creative and kind of think outside the box and because and, marketing's growing and evolving so fast as these companies get so much bigger and um, it's the game has totally changed but it hasn't made things easier. In fact, right. it's made things harder. I would think and, so. Um, so I think social media has been a weird one. I've never really invested myself into anything except for blogging. I've taken that very seriously but like putting out not putting out my best content, but putting out interesting content. And then Facebook, I do actually post my some of my best work too because I admire the social system it uses to spread media. Whereas Twitter and Tumblr and uh, a lot of other social media, I just haven't really, or uh, Instagram, I haven't seen as a viable method of promoting your business yet. It seems like a viable method of communicating with your customer base. You know what I mean? It is. That's the, the one thing is, I've used Instagram and Twitter and stuff to let out my personality. I couldn't help it because it's so much fun. Like I love Instagramming photos of my dog and doing goofing around with my friends. And then Twitter, I just love throwing out snarky, you know, snips yeah. about whatever's bugging me or I think is funny. But um, I really, through that, I think it's made me more personable. Right, it, which is, so has, in a weird way, defined my work even more for people that are interested in observing it. Whereas, I think I've maybe missed out on a couple extra thousand uh, followers, you know, and, and uh, but at the same time, it's like I don't see it being worth the effort. And uh, but it, I, I think overall it does help, you know, your image and your being a brand as a photographer, and yeah. a media professional. Yeah, I think so too. Shooting a bunch of stuff and putting it on the web isn't. Do you see any danger to that as well? Oh, totally. You know? Well, I think, I think. Being a photographer, it's it's not so much about the photos that you do show, but the photos you don't show. Okay. It's like uh, you're only as good as your worst photo, and so that's why I think people that flood social media and flood blogs and have very poorly curated websites, I mean, it says so much about you and it's right. such a quick glimpse of your work. Um, who knows, like, anyone gets a couple thousand hits on a surf website of photos just because they have surf in their titles or keywords. Um, who knows how many of those could be art directors or something that just are immediately appalled by right. the lack of organization. And I think, um, I'd say one of the areas I've put a lot of effort into about photography that I wasn't expecting to is that I took a lot of time and energy to make sure that what work I did put out was work that I was very proud of and I wanted to reflect my best interests and my my best uh, my best photography you know my best filmmaking I don't I don't try to put out as much as possible to get as many hits as possible right. instead I try to put out things that I'm proud of 
Right. And like for example, like Kai Neville's done that with his filmmaking, and you know he has a quarter as many web clips as any other filmmaker on the web. But what he does have is unanimously regarded as the best and the highest quality, and people hold their breath for it. Right. And the same with photography too. You know. Right. And, um, so yeah, basically being a photographer is such a multi-dimensional job, especially considering. In the 21st century, with all the social media, you're a brand now. You're not just a photographer that hands photos to a photo editor uh, without even seeing them on a roll of film. You're you're branding yourself through all the web stuff and through all the work and your portfolio. And so, shooting photos is really 10% of it. It's right. The, the rest is marketing yourself. And that, right. You know, for every person that does it right, there's 10 that do it wrong. And so that's something you really speaking to potential photographers and and analyzing. What I did, as well as what others do, is that you really have to put a lot of time and effort into curating your brand and your image and your work. Yeah. You know, it's uh, shooting photos is the fun part, really. Right. So, but it's so important. It really is. Yeah, I think so too. We turned the conversation over to money. Real simply, I was just curious what the potential income is for professional surf photographers with so much capital outlay for camera equipment. You know, I just was curious if um, if they ever see a return on that investment. I think, I mean, like right now, the ten the ten best surf photographers in the world are making over a hundred grand. The okay. top five are making probably well over one hundred fifty, two hundred, and then on top of that, like I explained earlier, I'm only working a hundred days of the year for Quicksilver. On the same any day of the year, I can syndicate a lot of my work to other magazines, which is a nice little income, but. I can use my work through Quicksilver and through other brands to appeal to clients outside the surf industry. And so when I'm not working for Quicksilver, I've used my surfing and lifestyle work from Quick and Millabong and Patagonia to get jobs working for Wilson and Nike and Apple and all sorts of crazy clients, you know? Yeah, no so it's kidding. been a huge ladder and it's been a stepping stone and it's, uh, I guess basically it's how productive you are and how far you want to push yourself and your work. Yeah, you know, but if you want to be a staff photographer in a magazine, don't look further or beyond that. Then the salary is twenty-five grand a year. You know, if you if they like you and start you off on a wage immediately, not as an intern, you know, right? Uh, or just shooting web photos at events. But um, I think, as we just discussed, through all the white noise and the amount of people working, as well as through the crunch on the industry, crunch the crunch across the world through all sorts of brands and after the global financial crisis. Um, budgets are smaller than ever and there's more people than ever working and going to school. Like Brooks pumps out so many photographers up sure. in Santa Barbara and everyone can go to Brooks now and, and uh, buy a digital camera. But to really work all day every day and have the stars line up to where you can climb that ladder of shooting better and better pros and bettering yourself, working in with a wild environment of surfing where not every day is perfect. like a tennis court or a baseball right. field, it's tough, you For know, sure. and it, it takes a lot of time and effort and patience, and if you can really round out your game and be bring intelligence, marketability, and quality work, and a good work ethic to the table, then you'll go far, and you can make a lot of money. So let's assume this traveling, you know, 28 days a month, or whatever, yeah. uh, isn't sustainable, mm -hmm. and Maybe it is for 20 years, which is, a, you know, seems like a long time yeah. now, but isn't in terms of a career. Um, and you're making good money during that time, but what, like, 
what is to come after that? What's your direction? Obviously, you mentioned commercial work and like working outside the surf industry. Yeah. What what path do you see for yourself? For myself, I see pursuing fashion and commercial work a lot more. Um, it's hard because travel, my parents and I traveled a lot growing up, my whole family, and so travel is kind of ingrained in my DNA. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I probably will travel to the best of my ability until I have my first kid, you know? Like, yeah. even my wife will travel yeah, as yeah. much as I do, and then, um, but then I'll change my whole game when I have a kid or two, you know, and have a house and a dog and whatever else, but um, it's totally, there's so many different variables. I know some of the best surf photographers in the world right now do one trip a month and they do that trip for five days and it's but they're still on massive retainers with their company you know like Pat Stacy is a good example he does not travel nearly as much as some of the other photographers but he is one of the best in the world right now and you know rewarded handsomely for it works for the biggest and the best company and you know he's just that good and produces and yeah absolutely yeah. and he's he has a wife and a house and he loves where he lives and uh, he's been in the game for a while and so he's kind of I can imagine he's configured his life to be kind of the opposite of mine. Right, you know, and, right. and he picks and chooses the, only the best trips and stuff right now. So pursuing a career outside of the surf industry, though, mm -hmm. we talked about developing relationships in the surf industry. Mm -hmm. What's it like trying to develop those relationships outside? Um, it's, it's like the Wild West, really. Yeah. The surf industry is so small. I know. Really, there's eight companies within a stone's throw of one another in Orange County, whereas the commercial world of fashion and lifestyle and car companies and, and makeup and stuff is it's between Tokyo, Milan, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco and there's thousands of ad agencies and those are your your you know, that's your target market, that's who you want to appease with your work, as well as the companies and, and their images. But at the same time that's amazing because there's so many out there and they pay so many different people to just browse the internet and find new people and uh, to work for them that you almost don't even have to lift a finger to get your foot out the door Well, they seem to have an affection for the surf industry as well and that too because it's such a fascinating sport yeah. and uh, lifestyle Yeah, so like Zach Noyle, you know, he got a call one day and they asked him to shoot a Chanel ad you know? hmm. And that paid probably more than he was getting paid from any other surf yeah. company at the time in the course of a week it was seen in every single airport across the world for a year and a half. Was that the Danny Fuller? Yeah, yeah. the Danny Fuller one. And uh, I, he didn't even have to leave his his the stretch of North Shore. Right. You no, know? he didn't. Probably didn't have to stay in a hotel. Easiest shoot ever. So, and that was shooting for one, actually probably the largest cosmetic company in the world. Right. And uh, one of the biggest brands in the world. Right. Period. Most prestigious. Interesting. So, and then building off that, that's like one instance. Kind of like how. Um, uh, an Apple ad fell in my lap for an iPad and uh, you know building off of that now you're in touch with ad agencies and creative agencies as well as the brand that would probably want to pursue if you do a good job you know your look and your style and the relationship and then it just really snowballs so you you mentioned um, representation do you as a surf photographer have representation and uh, in terms of an agent or manager yeah, yeah, or anything like that? Can you explain how that works? Yeah, so I have an agent and uh, I don't need an agent for my surf work because uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. The contracts are longer and more defined and it's uh, I kind of figured it out myself whereas for working outside the surf industry I, I have my agent work with ad agencies and art buyers and companies and uh, magazines that 
otherwise I would not know the first place to start. Like right. If, if I said, hey, I, I took this photo of a whale, I really want to see a National Geographic, you know, I, I can't figure out how to contact National Geographic. They don't have a editor's Submission. email the yeah. them, you know, on the website. And, uh, or they have a user submitted thing on Facebook and that's it. So right. um, my agent can go out and knock on their door and, and you know do anything really. Or if I say, hey, I want to work for Levi's and help try to shoot their campaign, they can throw my name in the hat and send my mail my physical portfolio to them or arrange a meeting with the ad agency that handles that because they know who doesn't. You right. know? And they can market me, they can pick photos that I can't, they can do so much more you know yeah so it is important to have someone like that because they're tailored to think for that of industry, course you know? how long have you had that relationship uh, about a year okay cool Chris Burkhardt's an amazing example too like yeah. he's I doubt he'll be shooting surf photos in a couple of years right. even though every single commercial job he's getting now outside the surf industry is based off of his surf sure. portfolio you know yeah and uh, so it's interesting to watch this happen yeah know? it is and it seems yeah. like like there'd be value, especially as your profile grows outside of surfing, that there'd be uh, more demand for fine art in the future, you yeah. know, fine art type prints. And that archive could be the most valuable, yeah. you know, cachet of them all. Absolutely. I'm not too hot on making prints or I don't really like showing my photos like that. Yeah. To be honest, like I just kind of, it's weird. I just kind of shoot photos for myself and... Like, I'm lucky to make a career out of it and be able to hand off a good portion of them to companies. Yeah. Um, I didn't but even, I think yeah. eventually, like, I'll probably sit down and I want to make a book, but not so much about the photos, but, like, about the journey of things. Because right. all along the way, I'm always, like, making little videos or taking iPhone photos or writing stories and doing interviews and stuff. And, like, it's kind of been, to the best of my ability, my life has played out, like, as a dream come true. Totally. And so... It's, yeah, shooting photos and like getting a photo that sells really well has never been a goal of mine. It's always been to take a photo like, yeah. to be able to capture a moment that I personally really enjoyed. And so that's kind of like, I guess the end goal is to maybe have like a, not an art show, but to put out a book that can just, yeah. I can just explain why I'm so happy and why I love <laughs> what I do, you know, and the journey totally. that I've been on. It seems too like those ones that don't see the light of day only gain value mm. as time goes on but also as the images that they were s that were taken on that same trip have gotten yeah. a life of their own in the public's eye yeah. it makes that private one almost more Absolutely. sentimental or I mean, intimate and I've taken know? photos too that at the time I nearly you know if it was on film I nearly just threw it in the closet whatever and no protection or if it was a digital photo I nearly deleted it but now it's like but two years on or whatever I'll look at the photo and be like wow that's really cool it was yeah. just my style changes my totally. ideas change and my outlook on beauty and life changes constantly and um, so I think sometimes someone can take a photo and it's not it's so ahead of its time or it's so uh, misappropriated in that current batch of photos yeah. that it takes five to ten years to really fit in you know yeah. and that's kind of the case that you just described is where it could be a while before a photo really resonates, you know? Mm -hmm. um, You've come up working with Dane kind of at the same time where he his star was rising as well. And I would say he's one of the first persons other than Kelly Slater and maybe Rob Machado who's actually has surf celebrity status, mm -hmm. you know? 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, where it's like you recognize pro surfers at the beach, but outside of the beach, you would never know who, yeah. you know, so and so is. Dane, on the other hand, is kind of in that realm, and a lot of the guys that you work with, Kelly as well, and yeah. and people that have helped define your career, are in that same category. Um, what's sur- what's the deal with surf celebrity? What's that like? How weird is that? Oh, I mean, it's, it's surreal. Like Kelly has had it for years, of course, since before he dated Pam Anderson. Really kicked that thing into motion, but uh, right. Um, but with Dane and I'd say Stephanie Gilmore too. Yeah. More so Stephanie Gilmore because she's like the female version of Kelly. Is that uh, they're beautiful, intelligent, multifaceted surfers that also happen to have a multitude of world titles underneath their belt. You know, like a real platform for their their awesomeness. And so it's kind of new. I mean, I, I grew up looking up to Kelly, obviously, and but Steph really kind of came to fruition the last couple years as did Dane and um, watching it happen is surreal because you know we'll be in a supermarket in Paris or something and there'll be people following around Dane you know taking photos of him or um, you'll be in uh, the most random place in Mexico and people are lining up to take a photo with Steph (laughs) you know and uh, it's really interesting to watch that happen. Are you a um, fan of it, or are you? What do you absolutely, think? Absolutely, I think it's incredible for the sport, you know, and it's been an honor to t- watch it and tag along. And I think that for those guys, I'm, I think they're paving the way for surfers to come, and um, as well as I think it's, uh, it's just incredible to witness, you know, and to see surfing, surfing so lo-fi and low-key, and so few, in the grand scheme of things, so few people do it, and these brands are so small right. in your picture, but. It's uh, it's cool to see people break that mold and, and reach up and out and uh, achieve celebrity and fame and, and to be ambassadors of the sport, you know? Yeah. It's like um, it's like some of the, the biggest ambassadors for music are the worst, you know, like pop stars basically. But in the case of surfing, it's cool that there's someone as awesome and beautiful and smart and funny as both Steph and Kelly, you know? And uh, that can appeal to the masses and can really show surfing and show uh, our lifestyle and then that I mean from a selfish perspective that I can hitch along on some of the trips and my photos can be seen that way and that you know <laughs> some of the perks pop up yeah dude you're the roadie with the band yeah so Morgan Mawson ladies and gentlemen you can follow Morgan's dog on Instagram at ham life life is spelled with a y We're going to close the show where it began. Here's a few words from the five finalists of this year's Follow the Light Foundation. The first finalist, Seth DeRolais. Um, I think I got inspired because I traveled a lot when I was a kid, and I I got a lot of opportunities to see the world, and I I, I don't have the best memory. So I think a camera was my uh, my first brain and memory that actually allowed me to remember my journeys and kind of enjoy that aspect of my life and I think surf photography over every every other fine photography I've ever done is the most challenging because we only get a split second to decide what we're going to do, what the light's going to do. If you don't really have an idea beforehand then you're kind of out of luck so I think it really like, gave me that drive and that love to shoot because it's, it's such a challenge and I'm very competitive and I love a challenge that is hard to meet and I, I think the first 
five years of my shooting now, I look back, I thought were great images, and I don't think I would use a single one of them for a single project. So uh, I think that progression and that challenge that surf photography really brings to the table is so unique and so special in the world of photography that I really found a love for it over the last 10 years. That's Seth DeRolais from the central coast of California. Finalist number two, 17-year-old Paul Green. I have so many dreams right now. I mean, I would love to have a gallery someday, just like Eric Chang. In an ideal world, I'd love to be a staff photographer for Surfer Magazine. I mean, shoot for companies, outdoor companies like Patagonia, I mean, REI, all that stuff. So. Pretty much have the whole world ahead of me right now, just starting out. That's Paul Green from Santa Barbara, California. Next, Trevor Moran. So tell, tell me, what, what is the greatest joy of being a photographer for you? I think undoubtedly, uh, one of the things, one of the reasons I've chosen surf photography in particular is going out and meeting people and seeing the world. That's far and away what makes me most excited about surf photography is we go to the most incredible locations, not because it's a great economy or great beaches or anything like that, but for the sole fact of chasing waves. And when you go to these places, you meet people that are very atypical from what you're used to. You know, I grew up in the city, and then I go and meet people that have been living without electricity for generation after generation. And it allows me to see the world in a completely different way that had I just stayed put and never left New Jersey, I would have never realized that's the, how the other, how so many different people in the world live their lives. That's Trevor Moran from Ocean City, New Jersey. The fourth finalist is Dominic Mosquiera. I used to think I was a pretty good swimmer. I'd put in eight hours of pipeline, but today I heard 12 hours in the water. Yeah, some days when it gets well, it's just beautiful. Well, we get lucky in Tahiti that it's beautiful all day on some days. You know, you can wake up, first light is amazing, and then it just keeps pumping all day long until you get that beautiful evening, golden hour, what have you. So, I'm one of those people that just figured I'm going to put in my work ethic, and hopefully something will come out of it. So, I don't want to miss any of this. I'm going to sit here until I get it. And I've been lucky enough that some people have appreciated what I've done. That's Dominic Mosquiera from Tahiti. And lastly, we have Mark McGinnis from Oregon. You know, I'm really passionate about cold water. What, I, what I'm used to and it doesn't bother me and I think that there's a lot to explore still and a lot to do. Um, as you saw earlier on there, one of our colleagues has Iceland pretty dialed, but uh, I'd definitely like to go super Arctic like that or way down south Patagonia, some of those island chains down there, that would be, that's the goal, get out there. What, what do you think is the most exciting part about being a photographer? Just getting that one, nailing the shot. You know, you work so hard, and all of us, no matter where we're from, warm water, cold water, whatever, just when you get out there, you can come back, and you're like, oh, this shot's good, or this shot's all right. But when you get that, like, A-plus shot, it just nothing feels better. You're like, oh, yeah, this is going somewhere. So that's the best feeling in the world. Trevor Moran took home the award for the 2013 Follow the Light Foundation. And that's the show for today, the art and business of surf photography. To see the work of each of these photographers, visit our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, 
where we have slideshows, imagery, and links to all of their respective websites. Follow us on social media at Surf Splendor, where we'll be posting some of my favorite images from these photographers throughout the week. If you listen on iTunes, just click the subscribe button and new episodes will automatically be downloaded. You should also rate the show and leave feedback. Lastly, if you like the show, please tell a friend. As long as people are listening, I'll keep producing shows. And feel free to tweet me some show ideas or leave a comment or send an email through the website. That's all for this week. This is David Scales saying thanks for listening to Surf Splendor. We'll be back in two weeks with an all-new episode.